HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is Michael Krupain, MD, Master of Public Health, a wellness crusader, a veteran of the Dr. Oz show, and now a cookbook author. I do love people with interesting journeys. I first met Michael when he was at Consumer Reports, where he was the director of food safety testing, and before he became the chief medical officer of the Dr. Oz show. I know that Dr. Oz, but hear him out. You'll be fascinated by his journey, and when he tells the tale, it all makes sense. Let's have a listen. Today, I'm talking to an old friend, Michael Krupain. You've had kind of an interesting career. When we first tuned in, you were at Consumer Reports, and that was a lot of fun, and I got to work with all of you and think about strategically what you were doing and what Consumer Reports could do to improve food and health and safety and the food system in America and beyond America. And the next thing I knew, you had up and left and joined the world of daytime TV, working with Dr. Mehmet Oz. And those of us who don't know about Mehmet Oz, I don't know why they're listening to this podcast, but <laughs> there are people who don't know about Mehmet Oz. But let's roll the tape back a little bit. To begin with, you're a doctor. You're actually an MD, gold platinum certified MD, as I recall, from Johns Hopkins, also with a master in public health. Am I correct? Yeah. How did you get from there to food? Did you grow up in a foodie family? What's... What was the secret sauce that led you to the secret sauce? It's a long, strange tale. Uh, I've got you know, time. I, <laughs> well, perfect then. 
You know, I went to medical school because I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I was a neuroscience major in college, and I really wanted to do that, and I did it. I started a neurosurgery residency, and one of the reasons I wanted to do neurosurgery is because I thought that neurosurgery would combine all of my interests, because I always loved cooking and working with my hands, so like that was the surgery part, the hand work. I, I loved building furniture, and then I loved the brain and studying how it worked, and so I thought I would put all those things together and I would be super happy. Well, it turns out I put all those things together and I was super unhappy because it really didn't, it didn't really combine my interests. It really separated them huh. because to be a great neurosurgeon, you have to devote every moment of your life to that practice. And I looked around at the people who were great neurosurgeons, that's what they did. And when I looked at the people who weren't such great neurosurgeons, they didn't do that. And so I found it took away from my other interests and I decided to leave. And at that time I sort of got lost because I had been on this clear path to neurosurgery. Were you already in the residency program by then? Yeah, I was in my second year of the program, and I was just so unhappy every day. I don't, it's hard to remember how unhappy I was, because you always forget about the sort of the pain in your life, right? Um, but people like to remind me how miserable I was. But the second year of the residency, or the first one year, I got a month off. And during that month, I spent two weeks in Italy at a cooking school called The Awaiting Table which is in southern Italy in Puglia in this area called the Salento. And it was really an immersion in the culture. And I had been interested in regional Italian cuisine for a long time. So my interest in cooking dates back to being three or four years old, making cookies with my mom. And then for some reason, I always kept it up. In college, I moved off campus as a senior and I had to cook because I had to eat. So I really dove into that more. And then after college, between college and med school, I used to work with a pastry chef on the weekends and in a catering place, not to get paid, just for fun to learn. Mm -hmm. And he really introduced me to a whole world I didn't know about and fine French pastry. And we used to go to restaurants and order the entire menu and travel around <laughs> the, the city and uh, New York City and go to bakeries and eat every cake they had. Right. So I really learned a lot from that experience. And then fast forward to medical school. I started a pastry club to teach my fellow classmates how to make these pastries. And at some point I realized, well, I can't make pastries all the time again because I have to eat. And that's when I got really interested in regional Italian cuisine. And that's where I started that interest. And then I really wanted to go to this cooking school. On the last day, our host, Silvestro Silvestori, the guy who runs the school, has become a great friend of mine. He says to us, I want to thank you for coming to this school because you coming here lets me live my dream right? Because we're paying him to go to this class. And now he gets to do what he's always wanted to do. Right. And that really stuck with me. And I realized that I was on a path where maybe I was going to be really successful and I was going to make a lot of money in neurosurgery, but I wasn't going to be happy until I took all that and did the next thing. And I thought, why am I waiting to do the next thing? Let me go do the next thing now, even though I wasn't sure what the next thing was. But at the time, <laughs> I had this fantasy of starting a water buffalo dairy and making mozzarella. <laughs> hey, <laughs> how? It's, it's, it's such a common fantasy. <laughs> yeah, right? A lot of people. I've run into lots of people with that dream. I left neurosurgery and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I joined a little startup company because everybody wanted me to come do something with them. And I did that. And in my free time, because now I suddenly went from working 100 hours a week to working 40. So I felt like I had a whole nother life. I started a website called The Dairy Show, which was a early farm-to-table video blog. The Dairy and, Show. 
the dairy as in giant. dairy cow. Very cute. Yeah, I thought it was a, a fun name. And so I would uh -huh. go to a farm and see how they raise their animals, how they made their products, and then go to a restaurant and cook something with that product, and then do talk about the science behind it. And that was my step into learning more about sustainable agriculture, getting more involved in food production. And through that experience, and back in those days, there was, there was a lot of activity and events and around sustainable food. So I got connected into that world and ended up discovering there was a field of medicine called preventive medicine, which is really a, a public health specialty where I could actually do what I dreamed of, where I could combine my real interests mm -hmm. in, which was at this time now, food, agriculture, policy, and health. Putting those all together in a profession was fantastic. And I ended up going to Hopkins because they had an area there called the Center for a Livable Future, which was totally focused on food and agriculture and how it affects health. So that's how I ended up in that pathway. And then I ended up meeting you because I worked at Consumer Reports after that, where I ran the Food Safety and Sustainability Center. And we had this big grant from the Pew Charitable Trust to test food for contaminants. And this was my dream job, really, because here I was working on food. I was working on health. I was in the media. And I believe that media is the way you change culture and make the world a healthier place, which is my mission. And then we were going to D.C. and doing policy work and literally changing policies to make people healthier. And so it was just an amazing experience. And you were working with great people. So you must have said to yourself, pinch me, this is great. I was in the desert wandering, lost, and now I am found. Yeah, totally. It was amazing. I, I met so many amazing people. I worked with so many amazing people, and we did amazing work. My first project I worked on was arsenic and rice. And I was brought in to do the science behind that study that Consumer Reports had done. And at Hopkins, our motto is protecting health, saving lives millions at a time. And literally, that story was seen by 300 million people. Talk about impact. Yeah. And the FDA changed their policies around arsenic and rice as a result of that story. And that was just the first job I had after residency. It was, it was so amazing. Oh, and I remember you telling me about it, that I needed to wash my rice two or three times. I'm like, what? It was something that we know now that we did not know, that you have to wash the right It's become people, much more common people know about this issue. And I think the world's changed a lot since I did that work at Consumer Reports, so we all did it together. I think people are so much more aware of antibiotics in food animal production. There's so many more options for animals raised without antibiotics, raised in a more sustainable way. It's amazing how much the world has changed. There's still work to be done, but we've made such great progress. Of those things that you worked on, antibiotics in the food system, arsenic and old rice, what do you think, where did you feel the most engaged as a change agent? I think they were all, it would be hard to pick. They were all such great projects. I think, again, that arsenic project was the first one, and it, I think it had the immediate biggest impact. You know, Urvashi was on the Today Show that the, the day that story came out, and we had about 10 minutes of the Today Show devoted to that story. We had the commissioner of the FDA saying, I agree with Consumer Reports. We're going to do something about this. And so I think that that was the biggest impact. But I think my passion was more along in that sort of food animal production space. And that's what I had spent mm -hmm. a lot of time in my, when I was getting my master's, I wrote my thesis on the use of antibiotics in food animal production. And so I was very excited to evolve that work. You know, when I came in, because I was a doctor, and I had a sort of a slightly different point of view. We started testing the meat that we bought for different types of bacteria and different types of antibiotic resistance that was more relevant to human health. And until that time, 
there were other people doing it, but we were the media people bringing it together. So before then, people really looked at it as totally separate issues. As there's food poisoning that you get from bacteria in meat, and then there's antibiotic resistance that you get in hospitals. But really, we're a ecosystem, right? And everything is connected. And that work was helping to show that what happens in the food animal production space can also affect human health in other ways, other than just making us vomit and giving us diarrhea, right? There's other ways these antibiotic-resistant bacteria can get into our lives. And then, so how long were you at the, in the Consumer Reports milieu? <laughs> I was there just about three years, mm. which at the time was the longest I had done anything. <laughs> that may always be true for you. I don't know. <laughs> and then next thing I heard, someone called me and said, you'll never believe Michael is going to work for the Dr. Oz show. How did that come about and why? So when I was a resident, and it all ties together. So when I was a resident, I did a rotation at the Dr. Oz show. So in preventive medicine, were the people who joined public health and clinical medicine together because we're trained in both. And so in our training, we've already had our clinical training where we've seen patients. And then in the residency, we get our master's of public health, and then we rotate through different types of places. I was at health departments. I was at academic institutions. I was at insurance companies. So I was getting this sort of 360-degree view of how our healthcare system <laughs> air quotes, really works. And so I wanted to do a rotation in the media because I was really passionate about that. And so I ended up doing one at the Dr. Oz show. And the day I got there, they aired an episode on arsenic and apple juice. And that turned into a hugely controversial topic. I was there and had the right training, the training that nobody else who was there had to figure out what were they saying that was right? What were they doing that was right? And what were they doing maybe that was not so right? Right? And I was able to help them get out of a messy situation. And then Consumer Reports came out with a story on it, and we all worked together on that. Sort of indicated that, yeah, there, there was an issue. Maybe the show hadn't covered it totally perfectly, but then the criticism also wasn't totally justified of the, of the way was, it was done. What was the source of the criticism? Yeah, it's, like, it's an interesting story. The FDA came out really strong, saying that basically the Dr. Oz was wrong, that apple juice was perfectly safe, there was no issues of arsenic in apple juice, that they had been testing it forever and their levels were very different, that the lab had made a mistake, you know, th things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the FDA had been testing apple juice and they had not released a lot of the results that showed high levels of arsenic in apple juice. And that the Dr. Oz show wasn't the first group to do this. There had been peer-reviewed published journal articles from academic institutions where they had shown similar things. The show was highlighting this by doing their own testing, as the show usually did. The show never really did original research, right? It would find some existing research and then illustrate it through another method. That was the criticism. And then the big thing happened when Richard Besser, who was the medical expert for ABC News, Good Morning America, came out. And he was interviewing Dr. Oz on Good Morning America and tore him apart. And they went to medical school together, so they were, they were old friends. But Dr. Besser just criticized him and told him he was yelling fire in a crowded theater and told him he was making a big deal out of nothing and the FDA said it wasn't a big deal. And it turned out that about two months later, after we had done all the work, we went back on ABC World News Tonight with Diane Sawyer and Richard Besser apologized to Dr. Oz. Wow. So that was the sort of start of my relationship with them. And then I became a person who they would turn to when they had a mess. After working Consumer Reports for three years, they had another big mess on their hands and they said, Michael, what was that, one? that was when 
a, a bunch of people with academic credentials wrote a letter <laughs> to the head of Columbia University asking Dr. Oz to be kicked off the faculty. And when they called me, I didn't know that was happening because it hadn't happened yet, but they had a heads up that this letter was coming. And so they asked me to come work there. I thought about it for a while and I thought, you know what? Millions of people get their health information from this show. I looked at it like a big bank. Like it's too big to fail with all these people getting their information. It's powerful, powerful podium. Yeah, great platform. Yeah. And so if I could go in there and make it better and, and make that information great, then that was worth the challenge it was going to be to step into that very different environment than I was used to. So did you become one of the on-air people in the Dr. Oz community? Eventually. I ended up being there for a long time. I was there for seven years. After a while, they started putting me on the air. After I was there for four years or five years, I became somewhat regular. And then in the last two years, I was on quite a bit. Wow. How'd you feel about that? That fun? I think at first I was nervous about it, but it was fun. It turned out to be fun because I'm always sort of in the background, making things work, fixing things, doing the science. And I think being in the background for so long, you get to sort of see how to do well in the foreground. And so I was actually, I taught people how to be on TV, right, through my experience. And so it ended up like, oh, I could do this. It was kind of fun. And it still is. I surprisingly enjoy it quite a bit. And do, how did you feel when there were all these controversies about Dr. Oz? Did you feel, listen, you have your bona fides uh, public health and consumer reports and honestly regarded scientifically unassailable hats to wear. And then you're on Dr. Oz, who, as I understand it, as someone who I probably have never watched an entire Dr. Oz episode, he says things that are not always so responsible. So how did you manage that so, as a serious person? Yeah. So it was, a, it was, like I said, it was a hard world to step into. And I think my philosophy in life or in the world is, again, my, my sort of mission is to make the world a healthier place. And in order to do that, you have to make yourself uncomfortable. And so I stepped into an uncomfortable, uncomfortable place. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought, oh, this will be easy, right? I'm, they hired me to make things right and to improve their reputation and stuff because they had a certain way of doing things. And just because I stepped in doesn't mean they were going to change. And I think I used to have said this before. <laughs> In the beginning, I used to get very upset. I used to go cry in my office sometimes because, like, we're doing a show on the 10 ways to boost your metabolism. I'm like, there's two ways. I don't know how, I'm gonna, how we can get to 10. That's crazy. <laughs> and But then I realized that, you know, again, when you want to do something and change things, you gotta you got to jump in. you got to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. You can't just complain. I mean, there's plenty of people who just complain to me. It was awful. Why'd you do that? This is terrible. I'm like, wait, you got to be the change. you gotta, you got to go do it. And then you can't expect things to just change because you want them to. I looked at it as a public health problem. And I teach a course at Hopkins called Problem Solving in Public Health. We can't solve public health problems overnight, right? Like we still have problems with addiction. We have problems with obesity. We have problems with heart disease. All of our public health problems don't go away. We got to chip away at them and change our ways, change our culture slowly. And so I looked at it the same way. And while I was there, we made major improvements. It was never perfect. But if you compare the time before I was there till the time I was there, 
the show changed dramatically and because people were willing to change and that's why they brought me, but it took time. You had, I had to build those relationships. I had to work closely with everyone. During that time, Dr. Oz went from the least trustworthy person on daytime television to the most. We got all the major government agencies who wouldn't work with the show before to work with us. Hmm. We did great partnerships on addiction. We got the medical societies to work with us. We did amazing things, and I'm really proud of the work we were able to do. I'm not proud of every single show. We still did shows with psychics and things that I was like, I'm, I don't want to be part of this. But I used to say, or I, st I would still say, I think the show was effective and good because there was my unit, the medical unit, which is the fact-checking science unit made up of people with m experience in medicine, and there were the television producers. And their job was to make a show that people would watch, right? And my job, I felt, was to make a show that would change the world, right? And when you, I think when you have these two, we're not opposed, but we have slightly different points of view, and we butt heads quite a bit, it makes something better. Because if I made the show, nobody would watch it. <laughs> it would be boring back then, right? And if they made the show by themselves, then maybe the information wouldn't be the best. So by coming together, and sometimes there was conflict, that was cool, it, it created something better. Okay, I don't know that this is kosher for me to ask you this, and I don't know whether I'm going to, but did you end up liking him? Oh, yeah, he's great. He's a neurosurgeon too, isn't he? That's he's a his... cardiothoracic surgeon. I think Dr. Oz is, I think he was successful on television because he is who he appears to be on television. He's a, he cares about people. He's a very warm person, right? He really wants to help people, and... That's why he was doing the show, and, and that's why people liked him, because he has this sort of energy that comes through that, that feels genuine, and it is. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I really enjoyed working with him, and I still talk to him. He's a good guy. And we will be back with Michael Krupain in just a moment. The journey continues. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We are back with Dr. Michael Krupain. And then what happened? When did you leave? Did you start writing your cookbooks while you were there? What was the next reincarnation of Michael Krupain? Yeah, so eventually I left because the show ended. He decided to run for office, which... Oh, I, I, I heard about that. I heard about I'm not going to comment on that part. <laughs> That's very different. I wasn't involved in that in, in any way. And, but the, because he did that, the show ended. And so everyone had to leave. Mm -hmm. I had already been planning to leave because two years before that, I had started working somewhere else and was splitting my time. Mm -hmm. After being there for five years, I felt that I had accomplished 
first of all, I was, that's the longest I've ever been anywhere <laughs> at that point. And I felt like I had accomplished what I came to do. The, the show was really, was better and it was easy, the job at that point. And it didn't feel challenged anymore. I mean, it still mm -hmm. wasn't, wasn't simple, but it wasn't hard. And so I started working at a, another organization as well and sort of splitting my time between the two. And the, the funny thing about the books, so there's the first two books I wrote with my good friend, Mike Royson. Mike is the chief wellness officer emeritus of the Cleveland Clinic. He's an amazing guy. He's trained in anesthesiology and internal medicine. He's created a lot of innovations in medicine and in the sort of wellness area. And he was good friends with Dr. Oz. It depends on whose story you listen to, but Mike would take credit for Dr. Oz becoming famous and bringing him on Oprah. And <laughs> other people would also take credit, who knows? But anyway, they wrote a lot of books together that were huge bestsellers. And Mike also, because he was at the Cleveland Clinic, he, and I, I talked to him all the time, he was doing amazing things there. So we were both uh, part of the board of advisors for a charity that Dr. Oz uh, has, or had started called Health Corps which puts people into high schools to teach kids about health, nutrition, fitness, and mm. mental resilience. And they have a gala every year that I would go to. And one year I was there and I was talking to Mike Royzen and I said, Mike, we don't tape during the summer. I've got the summer off. I'd like to come to Cleveland and work with you at the clinic on a project because I had always, one of the, I didn't say this before, but one of the things I was interested in when I left neurosurgery was fixing hospitals. I believe that hospitals are the most terrible place you could ever be for lots of reasons. You don't want to be in a hospital because you don't feel good, but also the way you're treated in a hospital, the way hospitals are run is terrible. And I always wanted to be a part of the solution there as well. And so the Cleveland Clinic was a place that was actually really good. It's a pretty mm -hmm. special hospital system. So I was like, Mike, let me come work with you in some type of project. And he said, that would be fun and all, but let's write a book instead. So. So we wrote our first book, What to Eat When, which was about a couple of things. The first half of the book was about eating with your circadian rhythm, tied to intermittent fasting before anyone was talking about it too much. And then the second half of the book was a little more silly about how to eat in different situations. Some of them serious, some of them silly, like some of them are how to eat to prevent heart disease. Others were how to eat on a first date. It was a mix. <laughs> and after that, we wrote the What to Eat When cookbook as a follow-up. From there, the publisher, they were both published by National Geographic. Uh, after that came out, I got a call from my editor and said, would you write us another cookbook by yourself this time? And I said to myself, I don't think so. Writing cookbooks is really, really hard. But I thought about it some more and I said yes. And that's where the Power of Five came from. Before we talk about the Power of Five, can you give one or two cheater tips from what to eat when? And are sure. you a pro-intermittent fasting person? Is that okay? Yeah, so, so the, the evolution of what to eat when is really interesting from, from, mm -hmm. from my perspective <laughs> because it started off where they were really asking us to write a book that was just that second half of the book, How to Eat in Different Situations. And from the time I was a little kid, I've always hated eating breakfast. My mom used to force me to eat breakfast. And then when I became a neurosurgery resident, I didn't have time to do anything. So I used to eat one meal a day and it used to be dinner. And so I did intermittent fasting before I knew it was intermittent fasting <laughs> and because I had no choice but, but to do it. When we started working on this book, my idea was let's debunk a lot of things about the timing of eating, like that breakfast is the most important meal of the day or other things. And so started digging into the research 
around that and discovered there was a lot of research about the timing of eating and, and our circadian rhythm, most of it in animals, a little bit in humans. And it turned out that your metabolism actually changes throughout the day tied to your circadian rhythm, like everything else in your body changes throughout the day. And it actually, breakfast is a really important meal, turns out. Uh, so the three, three tips from the book are really eat with the sun. So the sun is what sets our circadian rhythm and it primes our body to be on this clock. And it turns out that our body's metabolism is set up to eat more earlier in the day and less later. And that's the sort of second principle is eat more early and less later. So make breakfast and lunch your biggest meals of the day and dinner the smallest. It has to do with a couple of things. There's the way our body processes food changes. So our body wants to burn carbohydrates earlier in the day and it wants to burn fat later in the day. Fat is our storage form of energy, right? Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense because once upon a time, we couldn't eat 24 hours a day like we can today. And we might go a couple of days without eating. And so we had to rely on what was around us in nature and these cues from our body. And then the, the sort of third principle of the book is don't stereotype food. You don't have to eat like the typical American breakfast or the typical American dinner, right? So we think of like cereal and sugary cereal usually and pastries as a breakfast food. But in other cultures, they can have totally different breakfasts, right? And so if we want you to eat more early and less later, we also want you to eat better things early, mm -hmm. right? And so eating a piece of fish for breakfast, that's okay. That's something common in Japan, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Or eating something light for dinner, that's okay. You can do that. Eating pasta for breakfast, my friend Silvestro would think that was terrible. In Puglia, they wouldn't want to do that. Mm. But other cultures, they do have that type of meal in the morning. And so that's the third principle and where the cookbook came from the What to Eat When cookbook is, well, how do I empower you to do that? Let me give you some mm -hmm. recipes that you could eat any time right. of day. Give me a meal plan. Give me a meal yeah. plan. Right. Wow. Can you explain to me why if I am not someone who drinks a lot of alcohol, but if I have a glass of wine at lunch, I am decked for the rest of the day. But if I had one at dinner, I'm okay. Oh, I don't know if I could. <laughs> we might have to put you through some rigorous <laughs> testing. I'm not really sure why. That would be when I have alcohol, if I have it at lunch or dinner, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I was just always curious because I get much more affected when I have it in the middle of the day. Maybe I have higher expectations for what I'm going to do after that. So who knows? Okay. So then you had these wonderful books that sound really fun. And now I have to get a copy. And... Then was the next step writing your own book, The Power of Five? And how did you come up with that idea? The, the Power of Five is really a cool book. I'm super excited about it because it's personal, right? And it's it brand is, new too, really. It's brand new and it's my own project, right? Lots of people helped me with this book. and We can talk about how, what it's like to write such a book. But this, the other two books were written with co-authors and this one was, was just me. Yeah. And the idea started with my editor, who pitched it to me, and but she pitched me, will you write a preventive medicine cookbook or a food as medicine cookbook? And I thought about that and I thought, no, <laughs> I don't really wanna do that because I love cookbooks. I love cooking, I love eating, I love, I'm super passionate about food. When I look around at my cookbook collection, which is probably 400 or 500 cookbooks, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a healthy cookbook in the, in the mix. I would never buy one. Healthy cookbooks are usually have weird ingredients and weird recipes, and I want things that are always delicious. 
right? And so the idea of the Power Five came from a couple of things. It came from the fact that people are constantly bombarded with confusing health information. I worked at the Dr. Raj show. I know how the media thinks, and they always wanted to do something new and different, and, and new and different always means confusing. But the data is really consistent, and it's clear over many decades that there are certain foods that are better for you to eat, right? So I want to talk about that. The other thing is that we always are scaring people. My work at Consumer Reports scared people plenty, right? And that wasn't our intention, but it's a sort of a side effect of when you talk about issues with food. People are always worried about, I need to eat less, I need to eat less. And I wanted to flip the narrative there. I wanted to empower people to eat more, and I wanted to empower people to eat more of the things that they're not eating enough of that are associated with living a longer, healthier life. And those are the power mm -hmm. five. Fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, beans, and fish. And the thesis of the book is that there's a reason people don't eat these foods enough. And when you look at the data, there's tons of data that says they don't eat them. It's because they don't think they're delicious, because they've had a bad experience. They don't know how to cook them. They are too complicated. They're not flavorful enough, right? Because we eat for pleasure. We eat for things that taste good. So I wanted to, again, empower people to eat more of these foods by showing them in a simple way, for the most part, how to extract the most flavor, how to make them absolutely delicious so that you're going to want to eat more and more of these foods. And I didn't want to say don't eat things because I eat everything, but I want you to eat mostly these foods or more of these foods. Mm -hmm. And when you eat other things, because there's two extra chapters in the book, there's a chapter on meat and there's a chapter on dessert because I remember I used to work with a pastry chef. I love dessert. I eat those things, right? I want you to eat better versions of them. I have to say the recipes... For, at first I thought, okay, is this a vegetarian cookbook? Mm, not really, but there's a lot of good vegetarian recipes in them, and stuff looks great, just great. Also, the photography is great. So I made the mussels and saffron sauce. Uh, excellent, excellent. Cool. That is something I can do. I live on the coast. We've got a lot of mussels here. and um, That dish is a fun uh, riff on a recipe from Thomas Keller's Bouchon. He has ah. a mussel and saffron sauce that's made with about a pound of butter. Lots of other What could things. be bad about that? What could be bad about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but the goal, again, in that recipe, I swap in uh, some squash, right, to create that creaminess in the dish uh, and that same sort of texture that his original dish has, but without all the extra saturated fat. Again, showing sort of, not that you don't have, you can't eat the other one, but giving you a way to put more vegetables into your diet. Now, I thought it... It was fascinating. I thought that the recipes were clever, and most of them were within my capacity. When I say within my capacity, within the amount of time and effort that I'm willing to spend on shopping, prep, and actually cooking. What's the response been like? Of everyone who gets the book, they seem to love. They seem to love it. Right? The recipes are surprising, right? And again, when you think a doc, yeah. I'm getting a cookbook from a doctor, it's going to be this boring health food, a lot of quinoa. There's no quinoa in the book. There's no like, quinoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> there's no lettuce salads in the book, right? The book is filled with really hearty meals. It's filled with really creamy dishes, crunchy dishes, filled with lots of textures, lots of flavors, yeah. lots of variety. And again, the majority of them, as you've, as you've called out, are pretty simple and straightforward to make. There's some that are yeah. a little bit of a project because I like a project. And again, the book is very much a reflection of me, but that's like 2% of the book and 98% is simple. And these are yep. all things that I make all the time for myself, for my friends, for my family. And again, that's why it's really a personal, I'm just 
telling you my story and trying to give you the tips that I live my life by. It's also a beautiful book, by the way. A beautiful book. Fun to look at. Oh, thank you. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fun story. Mm -hmm. The lesson I learned about cookbooks is when you have your contract, you want to make sure you get to choose the photographer. Yes. And we were presented with a lot of options for photographers, and none of them really resonated with me until Scott finally... Amazing. So what's next? Are you working on another book? Are you looking for another job? Do you have another job? Where does the amazing Renaissance man that is Michael Crupin go next? Good question. I'm never quite sure where I'm going to go next. I have this philosophy of following my mission, making the world a healthier place. Now I've changed my mission a little bit. It's making the world a more healthy and delicious place and take the opportunities that come about. Uh, I'm not working on another book yet. Really focused on this one. This one just came out two months ago and I really want this book in everyone's hands. Again, it's sort of part of my mission to make the world healthier and more delicious. And I think this book is a big part of doing that. And so I want as many people as possible to see it. Also, I was surprised that the publisher's National Geographic. I didn't know that they did cookbooks and food books and things like that. They mm -hmm. only do mission-oriented books, right? Totally great. Totally great. It is so fun to catch up with you. I, for one, am going to be interested in what you do next. That's great. Thank you, Michael. Just fun. Yeah, so great to catch up with you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And I am loving your new book, The Power of Five. I think our listeners will, too. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.